My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Welcome to the now-playing Stephen King Trucks Retrospective Series. A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Arnie. It was my first picture as a director, and you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new movie review based on the works of Stephen King. I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. So come and spend some time with me and my friends at the Dixie Boy. Spend some time in the dark. Listener discretion is advised. I'm going to scare the hell out of you, and that's a promise. Today we're discussing Maximum Overdrive, starring Emilio Estevez, Pat Hingle, Laura Harrington, Yeardley Smith, Frankie Faison, music by ACDC, directed by Stephen King, based on a story by Stephen King, screenplay by Stephen King. (laughs) So we got one person to pin this one on, folks. Here comes another load of joy, Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A., crazy as a rat in a plugged-up shithouse. And this is the host that machines are always calling an asshole, Jacob. We have talked about Maximum Overdrive for years. Since long before we were doing a Stephen King retrospective, we have made fun of the trailer for this movie. And now, finally, I know you guys have forks and knives out. We get to review it. Me, I'm coming in as a cautious optimist. I'm an ACDC fan, and last time I saw this, I kind of thought of it like a rock concert. Not too mentally challenging, but a lot of fun. Are you still a Stephen King fan? I'm wondering at this point. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I will say this much. My favorite story in the Night Shift collection when I read it as a kid was Trucks. I loved the concept behind it. I would play this with my brother. It would become like a scenario where like, oh, our blender's attacking us. I mean, this was something that was translatable. What if your machines turned against you? Well, in suburbia, that would be a very big deal. I thought the scenario was terrifying. I couldn't wait to see this movie back in the day. I ended up renting it and could not believe it. I have not seen it since 1987 when it came out on VHS. But yeah, I've been curious to know if my memory of it can withstand the truth. Is it really as horrible as <laughs> what it seemed like when I was a teenager getting into Stephen King? All I have is one memory of this. I've seen at least part of it. It's when I was young. I had to be like nine years old. It was on late night cable tv all i remember is trucks driving around in circles around a truck stop diner that's all i can recall i don't know if i saw much more than that but i do have memories and yeah this is one of those films i feel is kind of infamous yeah for me 
I remember the trailers, and I'm a little younger than Stuart, and I was right on the cusp of stopping to be afraid of films, but I think I was like nine, and I'd go to see movies and see this scary-looking bearded man with crazy eyes telling me he's gonna scare the hell out of me. And then these red eyes would glow behind him, and I'd be part of me's like, that's the Green Goblin, that's not scary. Part of me's like, that man is scary! And so the <laughs> trailers scared me. Plus they used the music from Halloween 3. That just makes anything uber creepy okay i watched that trailer you guys have talked about this and i was wondering where that music was from yeah Stephen King promises to scare the hell out of us. I had to watch that trailer before I sat down to watch this. You guys have talked about it so much. And I did finally see this in the early 90s. Around the same time I saw Graveyard Shift, I was just catching up on all the King I'd missed in the 80s. I fell asleep during it and hated it, but I owned the soundtrack because I am a real big fan of ACDC. I own every single one of their CDs. I just really like that band. And so when I rewatched this movie after hearing that soundtrack two to three hundred times, I did <laughs> view it kind of just through an ACDC filter. So the question isn't, is this movie smart or even is this movie good, but is this movie fun? That's what I'm coming to it from. Yeah, I agree. It's not going to get a green arrow, I think, from any of us, but it could get some brown arrows. Can it be deliciously trashy bad? Can it be fun? And I do think thinking of it through the prism of, of rock and roll as a concert, as it were, you know, I'm not sure that Stephen King isn't having some fun at us. I mean, the throwdown is, the gall of it is shocking. I mean, he's basically saying, yeah, there's been some other directors that have tried and they've all failed. Wait, wait, wait. Other directors? Like who? Stanley Kubrick, <laughs> David Cronenberg, Toby Hooper, Brian De Palma are all shit when it comes to <laughs> making my material. Only the master of horror can make a master of suspense. And so, here it is. Well, Actually, he did say, even at the time, there were four good adaptations of his work, and they're the four directors you named. Four that critics like, even he doesn't like The Shining. But by this point, this is 86, and you referred to some of the earliest ones coming out, but we've got, and we'll be reviewing them all if we live long enough. I mean, we did Salem's Lot, we've got Creepshow, Cujo, Christine, Firestarter, Cat's Eye, Silver Bullet. By this point, Stephen King's name in movies was not that sparkling. He still sold a billion books. But by this point, I mean, De Laurentiis was kind of the one making all the King movies at this time. They were losing money. Dino was pushing King, who kind of had some aspirations to direct, but Dino wanted to turn it around, and he saw the only way to make a profit is by being able to put King's name as the director on the poster because he lost money on Cat's Eye, Firestarter. Okay, yeah, I do remember that Stephen King was more beloved for writing, but the movies have always had a checkered past. People were mixed on how successful they are, and... At this point, I would love to just see a mediocre one. But my question is, if you know, Arnie, Stephen King is going to jump in the director's chair. He had been studying during Cat's Eye how to do it. And he knew that he wanted to direct his own work to bring his vision to the screen. Why did he pick trucks? 
Was everything else taken? Trucks was owned by Dino, but he has claimed it's one of his own favorite short stories. He likens it to the birds with Hitchcock, only with trucks instead of birds. <laughs> yeah, I get it. All right. And since he liked it, and he wrote the screenplay already for Dino, not intending to direct it himself. And they were scouting locations, and some other people said to King, you're the only one who can direct this. And so maybe it was the ego, maybe it was the cocaine that went to his head, <laughs> because this is not anything we can be sued over. He himself has said, coked out of his mind during this period of his life. You see it in the trailer. Those eyes, yeah. Yeah, that's why he's got the crazy <laughs> eyes. Apparently, on the set, his alcoholism was so bad, he had PAs running to get him Listerine that he would chug on the set <laughs> to get the liquor. <laughs> I mean, this man was wow. intoxicated. Okay, well, that explains some of his choices here, but we'll get into the movie when we get into. But basically, he had some affinity for trucks. It was optioned by the man he was working with. It just seems like an old concept. I'll say that right off the bat. Whether the movie's good, bad, or so bad it's good, it just feels like a movie that would have been more relevant in the 70s when all of those highway horror movies existed, like Duel and The Car. I don't know if you ever saw that one, but Satan drives around in a Rolls Royce <laughs> mowing down people. It's kind of hilarious. You know what? I have seen Duel. That was a, what Steven Spielberg made for TV movie. And I remember as a kid, that was scary. Like, yeah, something about the 70s and highways. Hell's Angels were around then. That was a scary thing going on the highway. Well, truck movies were just in in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. I've seen Duel, but let's not forget Smokey and the Bandit or Convoy. Cannonball Run. <laughs> Gone in 60 yes. seconds, the first one. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we were just in love with cars. American Graffiti. It was just that era of cars. So to do a big car movie... 10 years later, it feels out of time. It feels out of sync with the 80s vibe already from the get-go. I kind of see this, though, through the prism of Knight Rider. Just a year or two before this movie came out, Knight Rider came out, and everybody was enamored with the idea of a car that could drive itself and think for itself. Well, this is kind of the dark side of that, right? You know, I had forgotten about Knight Rider. I never really watched it. But yeah, I guess there would have been a precedent going on in the 80s. It wouldn't have been such a crazy concept. But before we get into this movie, I have one last question to ask you guys. You've asked me a lot. Uh-oh. You're the King fan. Now I feel like we're in trouble if you're asking us the questions. Well, I'm also a collector, as people who listen to some of my other podcasts may know, and I collect Stephen King movies. But to avoid paying more than $2.22 for Maximum Overdrive, the only way I could get it was on a two-movie set that came with Maximum Overdrive and Raw Deal. <laughs> <laughs> what do these movies have in common? I am often baffled by those multi-discs, sometimes the combinations you get. Like, you know, you got Gremlins 1 and 2 and Goonies. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, every once in a while, you get some strange combinations. I don't think Raw Deal has anything to do with this film. No, I think Dino was involved with both, so it may just be as simple as that. Here's two pieces of trash that came out at around the same time. I think Arnold did wreck a car in that movie. <laughs> He's wrecked a car in every movie. <laughs> sure, what am I thinking? Yes. I guess if that's a tie, then they belong in the same box together. Together, preferably buried six feet under. But I would point out that on this disc, the font saying music by ACDC is approximately double the size of directed by Stephen King. You know what, though? That makes sense, because when I sat down to watch this, I'm like, okay, that is going to be its saving grace. If this could be an entertaining 90-minute music video, I might be able to go with it. So I get why they're advertising ACDC over Stephen King here. Well, we know who made who, but we don't know what they made yet. Arnie, give them the plot. 
It's July of 1987, and Earth is passing through the tail of a comet. We're supposed to be in the tail for eight days, five hours, 29 minutes, and 23 seconds. The people of Earth expect a pretty light show in the sky, but they don't expect death at the hands of the everyday machines around them. Soda machines, electric knives, even lawnmowers start to come to life with homicidal rage. But the worst are the trucks. Big rigs of all types start to drive themselves and kill with reckless abandon. But our story takes place at the Dixie Boy Truck Stop in Wilmington, North Carolina, where a group of truckers and station workers are having an ordinary day until the carnage ensues. Can I get away with that? Just once. Yep. <laughs> You're on notice. We focus on but a few of the people at the truck stop, including ex-convict turned short order cook Bill Robinson, played by Emilio Estevez, his conniving boss Hendershot, played by Pat Hingle, Bill's new love interest, a Florida-bound hitchhiker Brett Graham, played by Laura Harrington, and a young couple of newlyweds, Curtis and Connie, played by John Short and the Simpsons' Yeardley Smith, respectively. Plus gas station attendant Duncan, who early in the film is injured when the machines use a pump and shoot gas in his eyes. <laughs> it's so painful. He's just, he's out of commission for hours. Well, shit, I bet I'd be out of commission for days. No, well, we'll discuss it. <laughs> we also follow little leaguer Deke, Duncan's son, who's alone and trying to make his way to his father for help. Initially, the humans just try to survive, staying indoors while trucks circle the building, and the few that do go out are mowed down. The trucks bring in a truck with a mounted machine gun and start to hold the humans hostage. The trucks need more gas, and the humans will pump it or die. They agree, but Bill realizes that these trucks are, as he puts it, a broom. A race of aliens wants to inhabit the planet, but first the trucks must come clean up by exterminating the humans. And so he thinks the only way to survive is they need to race to an island that Bill knows of. Because short order cooks and convicts, they always know about these islands that don't allow cars or machines. So the group makes a break for it, pursued by the lead truck, a truck for the Happy Toys Company with a giant green goblin head on the front. And yes, this is Marvel's Green Goblin. We will talk about it. They make their escape to the marina, though one of the group is killed when he stops to steal a diamond off a wealthy corpse. But the rest of the group get to a sailboat and they steal it and escape the vehicular slaughter. Then, printed in text on the screen, <laughs> We're told a Soviet weather satellite, armed with nukes and laser beams, destroyed a large UFO orbiting Earth. And now everyone is fine, as credits roll. <laughs> okay, so this is, the what, the 27th anniversary? This is happening right now, guys. I mean, this week, by the time we get to next week's movie, in that span, it'll be the time covered that the Rhea Comet is taking out everyone. It puts it all in perspective. I mean, wow. Within two podcasts, all wiped out because of Haley's Comet. Or, or what do they call it? Rhea M. That was a big thing in the 80s. I got to say, the whole Haley's Comet kerfuffle, it was supposed to be the astrological event of our time and ended up being a smudge that everyone saw from their new telescope. I <laughs> guess that's something to play off of here. It wasn't in the story. I remember my dad dragging us out in the middle of the night to try to see that comet. But, you know, what this vibe gives me, you know, something weird from space is coming down. I get, is this going to be like Romero? You know, there's always those reports in the background of the dead films about something coming from a Venus satellite and maybe the dead rising. I, I'm wondering if he's going for a zombie vibe here. That's what the impression I get from this whole comet. 
introduction. Well, if you heard my review of Trucks, the original short story that I did over at Books and Nachos a few weeks ago, I thought the entire short story was a Romero ripoff. I didn't see the birds. I saw the living dead. And there was no explanation given in that short story, but it was five people barricading themselves inside a truck stop from the mindless killers outside, and then two of them have to go out to get some water the way two in Living Dead had to get some gas. I go into all the parallels. But I saw that so tight, then I think I must have been influenced knowing that when it came time to do the movie, hey, it's something from space, just kind of like Living Dead. Yeah, except this quickly turns from Romero's Dead films to the, more of the comedy to Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, that's the vibe I quickly get. We get this bank with its marquee saying fuck you on it and a cameo by King, which I thought was pretty funny. Like, the ATM's messing with them. Like, all of a sudden, this quickly becomes a comedy to me. Yeah, he may be telling us he's going to scare the hell out of us, but he's trying to make us laugh here. And you know what? Whether this gets a brown arrow or not is entirely based on how many times I laugh out loud. I'm laughing out loud at these moments. I was laughing at King. I don't know if I was laughing with King, but I was <laughs> laughing at him with his mugging for his own camera. He'd done some acting at this point. Jacob, you haven't seen Creep Show, I don't believe. Not in decades. Yeah, I was a kid and it scared the hell out of me as a kid. I was kind of worried about going back to it. Yeah, that was his first real big acting role, so I think he had some confidence in front of the camera by this point. I didn't know he was actually trying to act like, I'm with you, Stuart. I'm laughing. This is trashy fun to me. Seeing the bank swearing at its customers, you know, this whole bridge scene we'll get to. This is trashy fun. This isn't, like, legit, like, ha-ha, but just, like, yeah, B-movie, over-the-top, maybe stuff you shouldn't be laughing at as people, are, like, are flying through their windshields and that. Well, let's also keep in mind it's being scored to ACDC, and say what you will about ACDC. I think that they have some great feel-good music. Not the most varied catalog in the world. World. I think if you like one ACDC song, you will like every song on every ACDC disc. That might be why I don't own any of their CDs, but I do like when they show up in movies. I like when they showed up in Iron Man, and yeah, when I saw ACDC, I was excited. I like this music. It's party music. Is that their tour van that's getting uh, assaulted when the bridge goes up without warning and all the cars and watermelons start falling? That was the one thing I thought was too much, was having the ACDC logo on a van within minutes of ACDC. CDC being in the credits, but they do have cameos in here on this bridge. It was the bridge sequence that I started to get nervous. I was laughing up until here, but the watermelons of death reminded me of a Gallagher show gone wrong. <laughs> Could they go right? <laughs> <laughs> And the cars, they don't look like they're slanted. I think King should have maybe shifted the camera to add an angle because it really looks like cars are just going into reverse and slamming into each other. I mean, technically, this is inept. And in fact, the extras feel like locals. I mean, they did not fly professional LA background performers here. I mean, this is this really does feel like amateur hour. It feels like an indie movie, basically. It does have the Night of the Living Dead, we'll do it on our own gusto. But yeah, it's turning out into this kind of raunchy, rock and roll comedy like Return of the Living Dead. If he's aiming for Romero, he's getting closer to the ripoffs and the other series that Romero had no involvement in. As far as the extras and things go, though, this was the same shooting locations, the same area that they made Cat's Eye and Cujo oh, and yeah. so many others, because De Laurentiis, cheap 
not maybe Corman cheap, but pretty close. He just set up his own little studio backlot in North Carolina, and that's why King, as a writer, decided that he'd just use North Carolina instead of Maine because it looks distinctive. That's why this is set in North Carolina. Cat's Eyes in North Carolina. Yeah, this bridge. This bridge was the one where James Woods got busted for smoking. I recognized it. Yes, it did look familiar. You know, I'm glad this looks cheap. So many of these concepts that King comes up with, I, I don't know what we're getting next week with trucks. I don't want this taken seriously. Like, I can't take King seriously when he wants to make every inanimate object come alive, whether it's your dishwasher in the mangler or trucks and cars here. It's it's a silly concept to me, so yeah. It was a laundry machine, not a dishwasher for the mangler. <laughs> <laughs> there was a refrigerator in there, too. I mean, come on. Every machine could come alive in King's universe. But you know what? Yeah, hire King for a trauma film. He does pretty good at this stuff, at least based on this opening. It's an inept in all kinds of ways, and whether you're laughing or not is, yeah, whether you like midnight movies. I'm laughing. The guy on the motorcycle falling off, that was my first big laugh. The watermelons. How can you not laugh at this? I mean, it's just the epitome of bad taste. And again, the opposite of what he told you in the trailers. This is the opposite of scaring the hell out of us. Fourth laugh, Green Goblin? My have the times changed. There's no lawsuit over this, Arnie? Not only wasn't there a lawsuit, I checked the credits. Used with permission. Wow. Now, it was Dino's idea. Stephen King didn't want a face on the front of the head truck. Dino wanted a face, Darth Vader's face. Guess who didn't (laughs) say yes? Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. That alone, in and of itself, like you're working with a concept in which trucks are scary. Duel is a scary movie. Duel works as a thriller. You don't need to put a scary monster head on the front of it. I pity the trucker that has to drive a rig <laughs> like this. You know he would be mocked at every truck stop from here to California for having to go around. And I don't think anything's in it. Later, when Emilio goes and takes a look, and there's like one jack-in-the-box in here. I mean, I don't know what he's hauling. <laughs> well, he's in the cab. He's not looking in the trailer. I don't know what they're hauling here, but it would be laughed off the road. It's toys. It's happy toys. No, I got that. Which was supposed to be Toys R Us, but guess who else said no? (laughs) Yeah, come on. There's nothing scary about Jeffrey the giraffe. I'm glad we didn't have that. (laughs) Yeah, but no one was buying Green Goblin toys in the mid-80s. It just wasn't a thing. Oh, come on. This wasn't that far away from the Atari 2600 game where the (laughs) goblin terrorized you. I saw him as a legitimate threat. When I was eight, I don't even think I recognized this as the Green Goblin when I was a kid and saw it. Yeah, I did not recognize this as a comic book character. That's what makes it so weird. Now, having watched Marvel, I get it. But if you had no knowledge of where this character came from, you would just be like, who is driving around with a green monster face on their truck? I mean, it just, it's ridiculous. I think this has inspired truckers because in the years since, I have seen trucks with mouths added on them in the grill and things. And I saw one that had a giant Punisher logo in the chrome on the front. So it's not a giant fiberglass green goblin, but it's getting there. People are putting testicles on their trucks these days. I, I I don't know if it's all because of this green goblin. Yeah, people want to trick out their cars and make them tough looking. This isn't how you make it tough looking, though. <laughs> I just want to say, though, this moment made me realize how sad I am at the Disneyfication of Marvel. Because would Disney ever allow any of their characters, even their villains, to be used in another studio's film in death? and allow the Green Goblin face to mow someone down and have a big blood smear on it. The thing I think I've always liked about Marvel Comics is when they were indie, they were subversive. They would do things that may not make overall corporate 
policy sense because they were fun and they were fans and it was kind of a cool idea. They were working with Stephen King in some other ways. They did a Marvel comic adaptation of Lawnmower Man, not the movie. So that it kind of had a quid pro quo and he got to use the goblin. Man, Disney would never fucking do that. Well, I don't blame him on this. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't expect any company to read this script and go, yeah, use our property in this way. I mean, no. The answer is no. You wouldn't allow it to happen and I don't blame him. There's tons of product placement in here. Bic was fine with it. Apparently, a lot of <laughs> rolling paper companies were fine with it. <laughs> That makes sense. <laughs> Certain companies said you can use our logo on trucks, but not trucks that are seen killing people. Other people are like, use our logo. We don't care. But he tried to use as many brand names as they could to help pay for some of it, too. When I was a kid, this Green Goblin was not a draw. What was a draw was who was waiting at the truck stop. It cannot be undersold how important Breakfast Club and the Brack Packers were in 1986. It was a huge coup. How did he get... Emilio Estevez for this. Yeah, because, you know, I'm shocked that I thought this was coming off after Repo Man, which is a big cult B-movie hit for Emilio Estevez. But no, there was the Breakfast Club in between. Yeah, how did they get him coming off of that? Well, keep in mind, Stephen King, biggest author at the time, directing his own film. There was no get, there was no story. They had a meeting. Emilio was interested. He was so interested. He got so into this character, he actually went and worked as a short order cook for a while to get the <laughs> rhythm down he hadn't done that as a struggling actor king tells a story about how when they were setting up a couple of truckers stopped by thinking it was a real truck stop and emilio cooked them hash and they had no clue that the star of the breakfast club made them breakfast but it was a job and i kept thinking you know i think of maximum overdrive and emilio estevez i'm thinking yeah this is on his way down i forget this is still on the ascent with stakeout and young guns yeah you know what i think he made a deal with dino because he got a directorial debut of his own that same year with Wisdom. Don't know if you've ever seen that one, but it's arguably worse than this movie. But however they got him, it was a huge deal. It was why I wanted to see this movie. And when I saw him there with the earring, that blew my mind. I had no idea that men could wear earrings. I thought it was such a commitment to the part. I was like, oh my god, it'll never heal. I was worried about Emilio. I thought that he had really risen to the occasion and was giving his all here. Childhood you would flip the shit over gauged ears, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I couldn't have handled that. Emilio was a draw for me when I finally did see this movie. I came a little bit late to the Estevez brothers' work. I was a little too young for Breakfast Club when it first came out. But by the time the late 80s hit and Young Guns and especially Men at Work and Free Jack, that was the time I went back and checked out their video catalogs. <laughs> when his career was in a slump. Okay, yeah. <laughs> So that was probably around the same time I saw this. I thought I saw it for King. Maybe I saw it for Emilio here, but he does nothing for me in this part. You mentioned Repo Man, Jacob, and he gives almost the same kind of laconic, emotionless performance here that he gave there. I mean, maybe it's a thing he's going for, but to me, it, I don't know if it's, well, it, there is bad directing going <laughs> yes. on. Yes, we know that that's going on. <laughs> His director is downing Listerine. <laughs> 
So is it that the director is giving him nowhere to go, or is it that he feels that his ex-convict short order cook would just be this laconic guy and it comes off as tough? Yeah, it's not that far of a role from what he does in Repo Man. Maybe that's why I go with it here. Is I really like that movie. So this reminds me of that role, and yeah, there's no emotion here. I, I, I guess that's one of the things I put with the B movie. Either you're chewing up scenery or you're not reacting at all. Like, there is no in-between. There is no <laughs> subtlety. So with Emilio's performance here, he he stays pretty calm throughout the whole film, despite all the mayhem with these trucks. And to your point, Jacob, everybody else is overreacting, so he yes. doesn't really need to. Yeah, we'll get to Hendershot as boss. <laughs> but he definitely was a star. It didn't help this movie. <laughs> This movie tanked miserably, and they canceled its theatrical release in the UK. (laughs) But there's no overstating how important he could have possibly been. Well, I don't know how you're supposed to act against the Green Goblin, (laughs) but I can say I can judge him very harshly for the romance that comes in here. I mean, yeah, he looks kind of dazed about what he's tasked to do with fighting trucks when this gets going. But very quickly in the story, they insert a hitchhiker that just magically decides, almost on the spot, that, hey, we should have a relationship. And no sparks in this. That's where I really ding the performance, is that he can do whatever he wants when he's firing the shotgun, but I need to believe that he cares about this chick, and I do not. Yeah, I don't either. I don't know that actress from anything. I looked her up, and I seen a couple of things with her in it, most specifically Devil's Advocate and Gilbert Grape, but I don't remember her in those roles, and she's kind of got a flash dance thing going on. Ah, yes. She's not bearing her shoulder, but yeah, I get what you're saying. (laughs) Kind of tomboy, kind of tough. Yeah, her name is Brett. I mean, that tells you everything you need to know. She has a boy's name. Yeah, I, you know what? I don't think this movie hinges on a believable romance. <laughs> Everything about this is B-movie to me, and this is about how romances go. In B-movies, it's like, oh, well, we're supposed to kiss now. We're this far into the script, that's what we do. Like, I'm not questioning this stuff. Am I enjoying the trashy fun? I am up to this point, and not worrying about why she's falling in love with him. I will give one pass to King. This was something he didn't even want in the script. It was Dino saying, you must have a romance. And so this was was forced onto him, so King wasn't into it, the actors aren't into it. I mean, later on, they fuck in the middle of the night while (laughs) stranded here. I'm like, where are they? This is a crowded truck stop. I need to immediately put up. There are way too many fucking people in this truck stop, and it's not just at the beginning so we can have a body count. People who we never get names of live through this movie. That's ridiculous to me. So how there's so many people in this tiny truck stop, why there's a mattress in this truck stop where these two can fuck and be out of sight from others and why when the world is under siege ah, now's the time to get my dick wet it all makes me scratch my head you may not live till tomorrow and yeah i want to get one last fuck in before <laughs> i die i get it here's what i don't get like there are so many like strands i agree arnie there's all these characters there's hendershot who runs the dixie boy this truck stop and like there's this kind of subplot or at least a mention that he only hires convicts so he could like basically use them as slave labor doesn't play any part into this no it does It makes you dislike him. Yes, exactly. What 
King is doing is the standard horror job of creating dislikable characters. You've got the Bible salesman who's feeling up Brett, grabbing her thigh while giving her a ride in the car. He's lecherous. He then tries to sell the Bible to people there, but his car gets hit and he starts cursing and using the Lord's name in vain. He's a hypocrite and a lech. And then you've got the boss who's taking advantage of Emilio, saying, you're going to clock in for eight hours and you're going to work nine I personally think he could get more than a one-hour bonus with that kind of blackmail. But he, he maybe he's pretty nice in that regard. But what you're doing is setting up hateful characters so you can gleefully see them mowed down. I get that, that we're not supposed to like him. I thought asking people to work off the clock was hateful enough. Walmart does that all the time, and they hire people that aren't convicts. I'm on the side of the trucks. That's what it really does, <laughs> is that King seems to really despise most of the characters, with the exception of Emilio and the girl, who... I don't like because their chemistry is not working. So, yeah, we're left with a claustrophobic atmosphere in which every single person is either got no personality, no name, anonymous, or they're reprehensible. It's At this point, it allows you to think of this as a slasher movie. This is not Night of the Living Dead because Night of the Living Dead was about watching the dramatic tension as people you cared about fought to stay alive. Here, it's when will the next person be run over? Or electrocuted by a Pong arcade game? (laughs) Why is one of the only two black men in this movie a thief? Well, come on. I think he's just taking advantage of the situation, you know, a a cigarette machine. Now, kids, back in the day, you could just pop quarters into a venue machine to get your cigarettes. And we did. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's a trashy, fun scene. Like, this isn't just about trucks. This is all electronics or all machines coming alive. This is like the ultimate Stephen King where, like, everything's alive and everything's going to kill you but yeah this game room where all the pinball machines and the cigarette vending machines start spitting out cigarettes I, I don't think he's a thief he's just like hey free cigarettes those are expensive at least they are today i'm not sure what they were in 1986 prices well he pays for it though he's an opportunist and because he stuffs his pocket with every last one he's there when the arcade machine wants to hypnotize him i also want to point out this is an early performance from giancarlo esposito who you may know from breaking bad he was a memorable villain in that and or a lot of early spike lee movies he went on to do do much better stuff than here, but it's kind of always fun to watch good actors in bad movies back in the day. And I just want to point out this arcade game and Emilio Estevez was both combined making me think of Nightmares, a little anthology film where Emilio Estevez plays a video game that then chases him into the real life and tries to kill him. Never saw it, but I do remember that video box. A horror version of The Last Starfighter? <laughs> Kind of. I mean, it's very... I haven't seen it in like 10 years, but when I watched it, it was crazy funny. But these early deaths, they come from unexpected places. You mentioned electrocution by arcade, and we mentioned the watermelon. But really, the funny ones don't happen at the truck stop. They happen at the ballpark. Yeah, this is a brutal scene. The soda vending machines are spitting out cans, and it's kind of funny at first. But then you see like the headshot that the coach gets, and he's like got a big old bloody pulp of the head sitting there and it's killing kids i'm assuming there's kids laying all over that baseball field yeah king is not afraid to kill the kids run over them with a cement mixer if you will and that's right yes there's the steamroller there hit him in the head with a soda can firing out of this machine that i've never seen such a well-stocked soda machine (laughs) in my life yeah It's only because Deke plays the catcher that he survives. He puts the mask on and, yeah, he's protected as the soda goes flying. Deke, of course, is the one other stab at having a likable character. And he was the one that I connected to as a kid because he was my age. He's the one I connected to this watching because he's the only one who's really not annoying and emotes a little bit. (laughs) 
Yeah, he's pretty good. I agree. In this cast of people that we would see again in other things, I mean, Hendershot is Commissioner Gordon in four Batman movies. Emilio Estevez worked for decades. But yeah, I agree. This kid that never did anything afterwards, he's probably the best. He's certainly better than Lisa Simpson. Oh, do you want to get to the worst? We talked about the best. Here is the word. Okay, Yearly Smith. She can't do anything but that Lisa Simpson voice except scream because that's all she does in this movie. And I'm surprised my wine glasses didn't crack. As I watch this, it is so high pitched. I have kind of a soft spot in my heart for Yeardley Smith. Before I saw this movie, I mean, I knew her from The Simpsons, but the first time I ever saw her act in body was Herman's Head, where she was kind of a lovable geek. And then in this and a real guilty pleasure of mine, Legend of Billie Jean. Yes, <laughs> her voice is annoying in both this and Legend of Billie Jean, but you're not going to get me to say a bad thing about her. She gives the performance that's needed. She's got the voice God gave her, and I kind of like her panicked reaction. She makes me laugh out loud. Curtis! Curtis! <laughs> Just great stuff. I am laughing. Like, it is, to me, it is so bad. It is laugh out loud funny. Great as in G-R-E-A-T. No, great like G-R-E-A-T. A-T-E. It is grating <laughs> on my nerves. It is meant to do that. I again think that Stephen King wants to make these human beings horrible. They're newlyweds. We're supposed to like them. But when we have this hectoring uh, yokel screaming at her husband at every given turn, you're just waiting for that truck to honk its horn and take her out. I mean, again, it makes me think that I'm watching a slasher movie. It makes me see that the fun of this, the design of this, is to having reprehensible people killed. And she's awful. But she lives. I know she does. Yeah. What's your point? Well, then, she's not supposed to be reprehensible. She doesn't get offed. Well, that's a mistake of the movie. Yes. (laughs) They toy with it all movie long, though. I really do believe all the way up into the dock that she is not going to get on the boat. I do have one question about this couple. That same period of time where Emilio's getting laid, it shows the two of them snuggled up in a booth with a blanket over them, and Curtis is doing something under the blanket to Connie. Is he fingering her on their wedding night? (laughs) Yeah, I I totally thought he was finger-banging her. (laughs) Isn't she, like, giggling or something? Yeah, she's giggling and squirming and making noises. They are newlyweds. I mean, they're allowed. (laughs) (laughs) Publicly, though, there are laws. (laughs) They were under a blanket. (laughs) I mean, back to just the desk, there's a lot of them around here with the various things. I mean, I think that when Deke sees a lawnmower, is King giving himself a shout out for the lawnmower man? If only he knew what it was to come. I do get a little bit pissed off, though, when the sprinklers start teasing Deke, because those aren't mechanical, that's plumbing. I haven't seen anything that tells me these aliens can control plumbing. Yeah, you know, I I do have questions about how this works, because when Connie and Curtis, you know, they're trying to fill up their car, and they're trying to outrun these semis, like, why doesn't their car just come alive and run them off the road itself? I I do have, I guess, questions like that. I guess it's just convenience of plot, but I, I did wonder, why would one truck or one machine come alive over another? In King's original short story, it started with the biggest machines. It's started with the trucks and then it would start to spread to cars and then eventually down to motorcycles and it ends on an ominous note of an airplane flying overhead and is it automated or is there a pilot behind the wheel there's no way to know here the way king describes it is the cars are supposed to be friendlies and the trucks are the enemies but then he breaks his own rules because he was drinking listerine and snorting coke (laughs) (laughs) so there's a few homicidal cars in there too it's just supposed to be king's own words a moron movie. You're not supposed to ask these kinds of questions. Which I figured. (laughs) 
to me, the purest sense of King's design here is when we get the ice cream truck. I mean, nothing says to me Stephen King more than the killer ice cream truck that children have to run and hide from when they hear the tinkling little tune here. I mean, he wants to take everything that is safe and suburban and subvert it to make it horrible. I mean, we were at a baseball game and that got killed. I mean, he's just taking Americana and running it through the grinder. But Deke spends a long time not at the truck stop. He's outside when the trucks are circling and has to find a way in through a drain pipe. Yeah, a drain pipe where the Bible salesman, he got hit by the Green Goblin earlier. He's laying there. We thought he was dead, and then he starts moaning, and he's alive. And it's one of the few, I guess, non-truck scares or attempts at scares is when that Bible salesman pops up and scares Deke. Rigor mortis doesn't set in that fast. (laughs) I know that they're trying to say he he dies clutching Deke, and then the truck is going to drive off the road to go crush them. Uh, They could have done something with this moment. I like the idea. It would be very, very hard to get into the Dixie Boy from the outside. We saw that with Connie and Curtis. When they pulled in, they were tipped over. I'm wondering how this little kid is going to do it. Eh, that they have Emilio climb through the sewer and get him. It does beg the question, why doesn't everyone leave if there's this easy passage out of there? It takes away all the claustrophobia. I don't know if it's an easy passage. I mean, we see Curtis and Bill, like, climb through the shit sewer. I I guess that's a uh, inspiration for Shawshank Redemption. I think he'd written Shawshank by this point, but that scene, despite being a complete waste, is actually one of the scenes I like. (laughs) Literally, they're climbing through waste. (laughs) I mean, this is the scene where Emilio actually looks like he's having a little fun. He and Curtis are kind of making jokes with each other. Emilio gets some shit water in his mouth. Curtis is like, how does it taste? I'm like, well, you don't even know Bill. You just got here. What a fucking asshole. But Bill takes it in stride. I guess he's just that kind of guy. And he's like, I'm sending something for you as a big rat crawls past. So I kind of thought that was like a fun male bonding scene there. I think Curtis would enjoy talking to anyone other than his new wife. (laughs) And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and say for Brown Arrow Appeal, this first half hour does work. There are a lot of laughs. There are a lot of tasteless, tacky jokes. There's a lot of like, I can't believe what I'm watching kind of moments. It's a lot of fun, but it peaks at the half hour mark. The concept has run its course by half an hour. By the time that, yes, little Deke sees the airplane and it's playing Ride of the Valkyries as an Apocalypse Now homage, that's where the movie really has to do something more than what it's been doing. And that's where I start to really have problems with the movie. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Can this film sustain... I I, I counted about 40 minutes, you know. I, I, I like when the Bible salesman gets run down. But about 40 minutes, 38 minutes is when those semis just start circling that truck stop. And I'm asking myself, do we have characters in there that either I want to see killed, that are fun characters that will be fun to watch them die. Like, now that you've got all the gags out of the way, what can you do? And this is really something Stephen King excels at. I think that one of the best examples of this is his short story The Mist. But he takes a whole bunch of strangers, throws them into a situation together where they're all possibly going to die, and The true story is watching their interaction. Again, Night of the Living Dead. It's not how do they just react to the external forces, but how do they interact with each other? And you talk about the Bible salesman. I mean, we saw it with Margaret White, but he usually throws in a religious crazy, and he usually throws in kind of a working class guy, maybe an ex-convict who's going straight. He throws in a slimy guy who uses his position of power. These are all king archetypes that he's bringing here. So if anyone can make this pop 
on the page, it would be king. If anyone can make this pop on the screen, I don't see it. Yeah, the fun is in the slasher moments. They even take the psycho riff. ACDC actually does the ee, 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 but with an electric guitar. I mean, all that stuff is good, but I think what happens in the second act is that we're supposed to start to feel for these people. We want to see them escape. They hatch this plan to find an island where they can ride out the comet. They just kind of figure it out from a newspaper headline that, oh, it it must be this comet, and therefore we must go to an island where there are no machines of any kind. I don't understand. There are nukes. Like, everything can be destroyed. I I don't know. If they're really wanting to sweep out the place, the best thing to do is just to start World War III, right? Yeah, but they didn't know we were hiding them in our weather satellites, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, I guess not. But that's where the movie makes a crucial mistake. They told us that we should hate these people, and now they're telling us we should fear for them. And I get that trucks are kind of scary things. I wouldn't want to be hit by one. But I don't know that we're really getting fear here. A couple of people got mowed down. One guy did get diesel in his eyes when the pump turned bad. Yeah, Deke's father. That was a laugh. Yeah, I will tell you one time I did find myself looking down the barrel of a pump and then realized, wait, that went bad for Deke and I stopped (laughs) immediately and turned it away. This film may have saved your life, Arnie. It may have. (laughs) I think that moment was a little over the top when he's falling on the ground but whatever i'm not gonna say it would feel good whatever i'm surprised he actually retains his eyesight i think that would cause permanent blindness i think that if you flush it you'll be fine but i wanted to say the trucks are kind of scary when they don't try to overdo it when they don't put a green goblin on it and have it turn on red eyes and all of that if they just went with what is natural about a truck i like the fact that they're circling the pumps it makes me feel of uh like a, a school of sharks or something like that like circling for the blood in the water I feel like there is something that can work in this premise. Again, I go back to Duel. I've seen it work, but King is pushing it too hard for it to be anything other than comedy. I think too often he doesn't either know or want to go for genuine Hitchcocky and scares. The Birds is kind of a funny movie too, but it's not all laughs. I think, yeah, they definitely go for more laughs. I mean, when Hendershot goes down and gets his bazooka and starts <laughs> blowing up the trucks, it seems like this is going to be over real soon and Hendershot wins, right? Is a gun not a machine? I mean, technically, you know, I guess these are things to debate till the end of time, but I mean, couldn't the guns turn on them? There is a truck that rolls up with a gun. I was anticipating the arsenal to go bad or to not work, but that does not happen. It is essentially uh, their way out of there. They They could and should blast their way without refueling the trucks and leave them dry and unable to move because they're not operating by alien power. They still need to burn batteries. They still need electricity. If we shut down generators, if we don't fuel up the trucks, it's all going to stop before the eight days. And it should be noted for anyone who just is listening without watching this movie, they do follow, with the exception of the plumbing, most standard operating procedures. These trucks can't do what we saw in The Mangler 2, where the computer could just take wires and start using it as hands, and these trucks can't pump their own gas by ripping out circuits. They need a human to do it. And that's kind of the ominous end note of the short story, is we are now slaves to our new truck masters. Yeah, I felt like the story was like a metaphor for how how we were slaves to oil, essentially.
essentially, and still are. I mean, I think it still plays in that way. If you look at gas prices, boy, was I jealous of what I was seeing (laughs) (laughs) these people pump. I'm like, $100 and you got that much gas? Wow. About 59 cents a gallon. Yeah, incredible here. But yeah, I feel like that with the story, the tone of it, the tenor, it was a metaphor for its time, the 70s, the gas shortages, all of that. Here, I feel like if this is supposed to be the same, it ends up being a music montage to Hell's Bells. I mean, the, okay, we have to be their slave and pump the gas for them. I'm not really pitying anybody here. It's not that hard to pump gas, frankly. Yeah, I do love how Emilio, you know, he's been so calm and, you know, when he's flipping eggs over that grill, it's not a big deal. But man, pumping (laughs) those trucks, holding that handle all day, he is sweating it. He is sore. Like, they sell that. Pumping gas is tough work in this movie. I'm just thinking how hard it is to find a full service station. These trucks lucked out. And I have to say one behind the scenes thing. Emilio, he risked life and limb for this film. Because there's that scene where the truck's kind of pushing him, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that is a real truck that is pushing a real famous guy. (laughs) And... Emilio didn't want to do that scene. So King, he was scared shitless too, but I guess he took a snort and decided to do it first. (laughs) And so the truck driver did it to King, and Emilio looked and went, all right, all right, I'll do it. And so they did that. That was one take. And then the truck driver goes to the King after the take and goes, did I do okay? And King goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, good. I couldn't see that little guy at all. You're tall. I saw you. I have no idea where the other one was. Oh, my God. Oof. You do hope on independent films like this that they have really good stunt technicians, that people are competent, know what they're doing. But, yeah, that's a real danger. If you're just winging it and you've never done this before and it's a complicated, life-threatening stunt. Yeah, there was no CGI. I just want to point out, when we're seeing all these trucks, when they're doing all of what they're doing, they're really manipulating trucks. I mean, I'll give the movie that. They don't fake any of this stuff, and some of it does look dangerous. Yeah, unfortunately it was a mostly Italian crew, Dino's people. They didn't speak much English. King didn't speak any Italian. So this thing went over time and over budget just because they needed translators, and apparently the trucks didn't work. They'd almost wish for this to happen where the trucks would drive themselves, because the remote control units just kept breaking. I do find it convenient, you know, we should say that the way this deal is brokered for the humans to come out and fill these trucks up with gas is that a military chief shows up and does Morse code and luckily Deke knows Morse code. I guess Boy Scouts were a bigger thing back then and sure, I know when yeah. I was in Boy Scouts I learned Morse code. I didn't know it that well though. I would have been screwed. We would have all died. <laughs> would not have known to fill up the trucks. Yeah, I thought that always that was a neat conceit. It gave Deke something to do. Again, Deke is the character I like so that Deke gets to do something smart. That was an 80s trope. I mean kids are smarter than adults in 80s adventure movies and here's another example of that but it is at this point with the pumping of the gas while i agree i don't want to be pumping gas 24 hours a day in 100 degree heat and i feel a little bad for them i also feel a little bad for me because the carnage just isn't there there's so many people here who are like coming out and seeing billy i'll take over for you who are you why don't you get killed And then when they do get killed, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, there's a guy in a green shirt. Where did he come from? I never (laughs) saw him in the first half of this movie until he's getting shot up. The humans do fight back little by little. I mean, I got a big laugh out of this one waitress, Wanda. My memory coming back to this was she starts screaming, who made who? But no, she's actually screaming, we made you. 
and just going absolutely nuts, like yelling at trucks matters. Yeah, yeah. We expect some loyalty. I again, she's fun. I like when that knife comes alive and attacks her arm, and <laughs> we get some gratuitous blood splatter there. Was that a rechargeable knife? Because it's going not plugged in. Well, I think that's the horror is that even if it's not plugged in, it's still going. Batteries. I think if you got batteries, the aliens can control it. It's all comet <laughs> batteries. I want to see the killer vibrator then. She is on the opposite end of the acting scale from Emilio. Everything screamed. <laughs> and when she's taken out, that's also when we get to see Hendershot riddled with bullets. Uh, that's one of the few times where I felt like we got some real blood in the middle of this movie. And he's so deserving. And he gets shot up, which is perfect because he was hoarding his weapons. He didn't want to tell anyone about the weapons or anything like that. And so that he dies with bullets is ironic. Yeah, you know, it reminded me in vague ways of that Night of the Living Dead conflict about do we stay upstairs or do we go downstairs? All the weapons are downstairs. He's trying to control it. I don't know. This movie is a very thin, pale imitation of Romero. Yeah, that's quite a stretch there. No, but I I do feel like if you did a couple lines and thought about Night of the Living Dead, you would probably come to similar conclusions king does here and there's another african-american gentleman there i mentioned the one who was stealing from the machines the guy who drove the happy toys truck in i was completely confused for most of the movie because i thought he was ken foray at the beginning and i thought he'd really have something to do he never does anything yeah the owner of the green goblin needs to be a big badass i mean i thought when he came in there he would be the strong silent type to pull everyone together in the crazy chaos but i don't even notice is he on the boat at the end did he get away yeah i think so there's a lot of people on that boat at the (laughs) end but i was looking for him and he is there when they're planning their escape and not a lot of people die during the escape so i think he survives yeah and i just want to point out that's frankie Faison. we would later get to know him as the caretaker of hannibal lecter and silence of the lambs and hannibal i knew he looked familiar i just had the movie wrong yeah he was barney and he had more to say and do in those movies and he was an extra (laughs) but i do feel like it's a serious detriment the second act of the movie i do feel like it's wrong that they're playing into the truck's plan and i don't really understand what makes them decide to stop doing it and to run away i think it's emilio's broom metaphor This wonderful broom metaphor. After pumping the gas, he had an epiphany with his heat stroke that this is the alien's way of cleaning up. Personally, I'm thinking they're cleaning up by spreading global warming and all of this exhaust fumes (laughs) into the air. It's the long plan. (laughs) (laughs) But they want to clean up, and so it will never end. I thought the opening thing that said that this was going on for the eight days five hours, 29 minutes, and 23 seconds meant that at the 30th second, it was over. But he thinks it's never going to end. And the comet was just like their ship that brought them here to take control of the trucks. So with no end in sight, the only chance is to escape to that wonderful island. Yeah, that's my question is about the aliens. Like, do they control the comet? Do they just line up their invasion with the comet because they know it will do this to machines? I didn't understand We don't know that there are aliens. We don't know. There is no UFO ever seen in this movie. The sky is green. But we're told one's blown up at the end. 
my point is they look up and they see a green sky and out of that they infer that aliens are trying to wipe us out so that they can move in. That's a big stretch. And I guess he's right because we're given no other explanation, but a huge, huge stretch. I feel like they could have developed that more in the second act. Maybe they could have had the trucks communicating to the UFO in Morse code. The kid could have figured out more signals. I don't know, but I feel like you need to establish that there is a UFO. Green Goblin phone home? (laughs) I thought there was a comet. I didn't know that there was a flying saucer. Yeah, when Emilio's saying that, I'm like, well, how much credence am I going to give this? But as we've said with other movies, in lack of any other explanation, plus in this case, the supporting exposition at the end tells me, yeah, it's aliens trying to kill us and the Russians saved us all with their nukes. That's a kind of progressive view for mid-80s. Yeah, it's a joke in the 80s that the Russians would save the world. With a weather satellite that has nukes. Cold War humor. You kids, you might get it soon with this new Russia stuff going on. That's the reason why they all must escape the trucks and go to the island. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's only five more days. They could just keep pumping the gas. It undermines the stakes, but come on, let's face it. I want to see more slaughter, and that's kind of what we get here, although it's all machine slaughter. When they're on the road, we get to see a fast food drive through sign get shot up by a child. That's kind of fun. This is for my dad, you loudmouth son of a bitch. He had to get one out because the trucks did run over his, his dad after he was blinded by the diesel. And he must disavow weapons after avenging his father. I, I, I don't know. I find this stuff funny. I'm not taking any of this seriously. You can't. No. No. And this is also during their escape when the Green Goblin finally gets a face-on kill. I mean, they didn't want to blemish the Goblin. He did hit the Preacher, so there was a blood smear on the back, and the Preacher didn't die immediately. He lied in the ditch and was still an asshole for some of the movie. But the Green Goblin finally gets a kill when this nameless trucker sees this nameless rich person at the marina and goes, Oh, a diamond! And that means he's going to get splattered on the goblin like a bug on a windshield. That was a fun detail. I do like when human failings get them killed. I mean, it's only because he's greedy. Yeah, they were all going to get to the sailboat. He could have gotten away, except he saw that, yes, some elderly woman had been crushed by her driver's side window, and her hand was dangling out with a big old rock on it. I think that's kind of funny, that he'd have to stop to get the ring. What would the ring even be worth after we reclaim control of America? I just think our monetary systems would be in shambles, but he's thinking the short term and he pays for it. Yeah, I mean, I guess Green Goblin was the biggest thing. I thought it was supposed to be about the ice cream truck. I thought that was the big (laughs) scary thing. I thought maybe Deke should have been the one to kill that, but it ended up being the chick and Curtis. But I do blame King because all of these quote-unquote action scenes are really lacking in action. And... There's gratuitous explosions. I mean, not since the Dukes of Hazard have I seen a car, like, hit a pothole and then blow yes. into flames. Every car, one rickety little truck that looks like Mater from Cars goes off the road. He's a huge flaming fireball. The truck stop itself explodes. In addition to all the weapons in the basement, he must have had one hell of a propane storage place. There was gas stored, I guess, underneath. I don't know. With this kind of film, that's what I want. I want the explosions to be big and loud and not necessarily make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, you shoot a bullet hole in the higher and I want to see that car blow up. Here's my biggest problem with the film and it comes right at the end. ACDC has been such a big deal 
They don't end with Highway to Hell. Why the hell not? Like, <laughs> that is the movie. Highway to Hell. You're right. That's not in the movie. They do Shook Me All Night Long, I think, is what they ended with here. Yeah, I don't know. I, they did stick mostly to their 80s stuff. Highway to Hell was their first singer in an earlier riff. They only bring one of those in. And I listen to that soundtrack so often, viewing it as kind of a mini greatest hits with a couple extra tracks. And yeah, Highway to Hell, not there. That does seem obvious and a missed opportunity that can only be blamed on either some rights issue I don't know about or again cocaine and Listerine (laughs) I think cocaine and Listerine are gonna play a lot into our recommends here well let's see if you guys take the highway to green arrows Jacob Stewart do you recommend maximum overdrive Jacob to me this isn't about a red arrow it's gonna get a recommend question is is this a green or a brown arrow for me what yeah i do like trashy b movies like this is the kind of stuff i like to you know watch on a a saturday night you know something to laugh at and pass the time i think the first half hour or 40 minutes it's pretty entertaining and and to me that is an actual legitimate green arrow i am laughing i'm having fun the problem is once we settle at that truck stop it loses a lot of that fun those characters aren't built up and yeah i guess this is a listerine and cocaine king because i've seen that missed film and i don't know if the book is like that at all but whether or not i like that film he's able to take a big group and have everyone have a voice and create some dramatic conflict here i i don't feel like this group i don't really know anyone here i mean i know bill because it's emilio estevez i don't know if you swap him out with curtis if it has any effect on this plot hendershot he's fun he's chewing up scenery that waitress like there's moments during the second act and during the third act again i think some of that fun comes back because you're able to go outside this truck stop and you get the drive through and get a few of those moments again what it comes down to would i watch this again yeah i would i would watch this over cat's eye cat's eye was one i was kind of on the fence about you know is that a recommend not recommend this i i I realize it's not a good film listerine cocaine is the perfect explanation for maximum overdrive my problem is yeah i think arnie you said it the action here we get some cool explosions it's trashy but it's not exciting action so for me this is a recommendable midnight movie and so uh, for me it's the brown arrow it's trashy fun it's not really fun entertaining throughout the film but it has its moments and and so i'll give it a brown arrow i'll recommend it for that stewart yeah this could never be a green arrow this is a very poorly made film and you can be trashy and be great i mean i really love return of the living dead i love killer clowns from outer space you can take outrageous gonzo midnight movie premises and with some skill and some understanding of the genre make a fun comedy this has some big laughs in the beginning and then it just runs out of gas i mean the middle of this movie is dull and while they try to get back to it no this is not even a brown arrow this is an exceedingly bad Romero wannabe from someone who is not in touch with their wit who is not in touch with the skills of making cinema king had a lot to learn and he just he drops the ball completely here so while i acknowledge that this is one of the guiltier pleasures of night shift and that it's more fun than mangler more fun than graveyard shift uh, i would watch it over any sometimes they come back but i'd say this much if you liked lawnmower man then see this if you didn't like lawnmower man don't even go anywhere near it and i have to wonder i don't know anything about it But can a TV movie remake a decade later 
be any worse than this. Can it really? I'm going to go and say it right now. There's no way. Next week is going to be a better movie. Some nobody from Canada is going to do better with this material than the man who wrote it. Strong not recommend for anyone other than Lawnmower Man fans. Well, what about ACDC fans? All I know about next week's movie is it doesn't have an ACDC score. Now, I want to specify, this movie has no score. There's no composer. If there's a melodic piece of music, it's ACDC. If there's a rock song, it's ACDC. If there's a psycho-like shriek, it's ACDC playing psycho on an electric guitar. That may have been part of my recommend, too. I did love this quote-unquote score or ACDC just doing all the music. No matter what next week's TV movie holds, unless it's (laughs) wall-to-wall Slayer I can't see it meeting this level of quality just from a pure fun perspective because this does have that rock concert quality to me. But I can't disagree with you, Stuart, that it's really fun for the first half hour. And it's not that the novelty wears off. It's that the movie stops trying to be about fun and starts trying to be about setups and escapes. And, you know, I think it's real easy for anyone to sit at home and watch a movie and say, I can do better. But I watched this movie, Stephen King, who... He quote-unquote studied under Romero and the guy who did Cat's Eye by watching what they did and thought he could do it. And he told lots of stories in interviews about how he didn't understand things about, like, the axis of the camera and how you can't reverse it. And so he'd be calling George Romero at night, like, my cinematographer's telling me this. What's your feeling? (laughs) Because he just didn't know. And I watched this movie, and you know what I thought of was a scene in Ferris Bueller where it's just this non-sequitur. He's playing a clarinet horribly and stops and looks at the camera smiles and says never had one lesson and then goes back to it and that's pretty much (laughs) stephen king's directing ability right there he has never had one lesson but he's gonna do it with a smile on his face and to him he sounds like good music but the saddest thing i mentioned the cinematographer the saddest thing about this is he lost an eye on this movie This movie cost somebody their vision out of one eye. The lawnmower went nuts and hit a brick and shot wood into this man's eye, and he ended up suing King personally for $18 million for unsafe working conditions. Wow. And so that's got to be what I'm weighing on, is there's some fun, there's some ineptness, but in the end, this cost somebody an eye, so I'm going to just gently tip the scales in the way of a red arrow. The right choice. Thank you. Yes. I recognize this movie's place. I love that it exists for no other reason than it continues to humiliate and shame Stephen King (laughs) for his hubris, you know, that he can't respect good directors that work on his material, that he thinks he's the only one that can do his material. This may not be the worst Stephen King adaptation. That's a step too far. We've seen worse movies. Graveyard shift. Yes, but he should definitely feel humbled at how hard it is to make even a competent movie after this. I think he does. Arnie, did he ever come out and say anything after he did this? Oh yeah, absolutely. He embraces the failure and says it's the worst Stephen King movie ever made. Okay. Well, no, he's wrong there, too. (laughs) 
you know what? He's not one with such an ego, other than with the remake of The Shining, that he can't be objective about his own work. He is often his own harshest critic. And so that's why he may look at this and call it the worst Stephen King movie ever made. I imagine that for him, this is the most unwatchable Stephen King movie, because every shot will remind him of a failure of his own. And this did come right about at the pinnacle of his alcohol and drug abuse. It wasn't too long after this. There was an intervention and a period of sobriety. Maybe this is the intervention. I mean, maybe it took this for him to get clean. I like that. That makes me like this movie better, to think that this is rock bottom. No, the Tommy Knockers, the novel, was the rock bottom. Oh, God, it was. (laughs) (laughs) That was the breaking point. But that wasn't too long after this. But, no, he embraces that this is utter crap and that he wanted to direct and I can't blame him. If somebody showed up on my doorstep and said, I'm going to give you millions of dollars, go direct a film, who's going to say no? It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. He took it. He has no regrets about doing it. He doesn't think it turned out very well. And from time to time, he's even recently in the director's commentary of The Shining, he said he'd like to maybe someday direct again after taking some film classes. Yeah, you know, and I wouldn't be opposed to that. I'm, I'm sure he could do a better job. Like I said, this seems to be a really dark period in his life and it resulted in what it did because he was working with the people that he did and, and was given access to what he did. I do wonder how much better it would have been if he had just picked another short story. Trucks is hard to make work in the 80s. It's going to be hard for them to make work in the 90s next week. Yes, I didn't even know about this remake, but next week we're going to be reviewing Trucks. It's not titled Maximum Overdrive. It's not necessarily a remake of this movie so much as another adaptation of that original short story. So... We will be back next week to discuss it. And in the meantime, for those who are donating to support our show, don't forget this Friday, we have Battle for Planet of the Apes. This is the last of the original Apes movies before we start getting to the remakes. And it marks us over halfway done with our Planet of the Apes podcast. Time is really running out. Remember, after our donation drive ends at the end of July, these go in the vault. And I've honestly lost count of the emails I've gotten asking for Alien, asking for Jaws, asking for Psycho, asking for Return of the Living Dead. And 100% of the people get the same answer from all of us. No. The period is over. These are limited edition podcasts that at this time we have no intent of ever re-releasing after July 31st. So if you want to hear these reviews ever, I know $10 or $25 can sometimes be hard to come by, but you need to scrape it together and donate by July 31st. If you head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top. It has all the details, but for $10, you get five bonus podcasts, the four Matrix reviews, plus the upcoming review of Jupiter Ascending. And for $25 or more, you get all of those plus the eight Planet of the Apes podcasts. So if you donate today, you've got eight podcasts, over eight hours of content just right there ready for you. And then an extra podcast each week going out until we finish the remake of Planet of the Apes. And you know Dawn is looking really good here. I think that that's one we're definitely going to want to talk about. I'm glad we chose this year to do Apes because I think this one's going to be special. And I think Maximum Overdrive and Trucks are really your way of trying to convince me to think that maybe, just maybe, I could give a green arrow to Transformers when we finally get to those (laughs) crazy trucks. But I don't know. we got to get to trucks first next week. Hope to see you then. Well, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. We'll be back next week with trucks. 
And until then, ride on. I hate those fucking trucks. I never did like trucks anyway. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Sorry, guys. It's fun while it lasts, but we're all out. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another film based on Stephen King's books and short stories. That's what I was doing before every machine in the world went into maximum overdrive. And at our sister podcast, BooksAndNachos.com, you can hear Arnie's reviews of the original Stephen King books and stories on which these films are based. Now I know you've been to college, boy. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, and more. This machine just called me an asshole! At our website, you can also find reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and Robocop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Trucks don't drive by themselves. Stranger things have happened around here. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. We made them. You can! We made them! You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Found it for Christmas talking, Bubba. <laughs> now Playing's Trucks Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Shitty job, but I reckon somebody's got to do it. He been right, Bubba. <laughs> now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. That's one. I never heard no talk like that when I was a boy. <laughs> the film discussed in this podcast is the property of the original copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. Did you hear anything that man said? The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I don't know what to make you, boy. You bright. I know you. Keep on being obtuse. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. And this is the host that machines are always calling an asshole, Jacob. You took my line, Arnie. I can't believe you. I have the shirt for that. I uh, actually have course. a Green Goblin shirt. Anything that's talking about loads and cum, you got a shirt for, it. <laughs> Here's the thing is I liked it because it was like a Green Goblin shirt. It was maximum overdrive. <laughs> then I realized it says, here comes another load of joy. And now I'm kind of embarrassed to wear it out of the house. <laughs> Just put your T2 glasses on. No one will recognize you. Yeah. <laughs>
You know, I had forgotten about Knight Rider. I never really watched it. But yeah, I guess there would have been a precedent going on in the 80s. It wouldn't have been such a crazy concept. I thought the dark side of Knight Rider was Hasselhoff with his goatee. Yeah, Garth Knight. Garth, that's and, it. Yes. And let's not forget Carr, the evil Carr. <laughs> K-A-R-R. Oh, you know you're in trouble when it's a K. Well, Kit was with the K too, but yes. <laughs> One rickety little truck that looks like, is it Maynard from Trucks? Maynard from Cars? Mater from Cars? I think Curtis would enjoy talking to anyone other than his new wife. <laughs> Curtis! I was thinking about wailing it, but <laughs> you did it for me.